In this episode of 2000 Bucks, Mike Michalowicz, a serial entrepreneur, shows us why the lack of money and resources is our biggest advantage when starting and growing a business. Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. Books in the field of startups, marketing, sales, productivity, management, leadership, strategy, self-help, and much more. And I'm your host, Manny Vaya. So today we have Mike Michalowicz, a serial entrepreneur who has had multiple multi-million dollar exits and has written four books. In this episode, we will be talking about his first book, Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. So I might, uh, I met Mike at South by Southwest this year, and he was talking about profit first and got to have a front row seat, uh, uh, watch him or listen to him talk. And uh, what I found about Mike was that he's a really funny guy. I just didn't realize that. Uh, I thought maybe if that was his book person, I would be a real different person in in real life. But no, he is a funny guy. It comes through every every way you talk to him, everywhere you you have a conversation with him. So, Mike, uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now I feel like I got to do like some clown sound effect, like waka waka. But uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I I when I speak and write, I just I think life is too short, at least for me, to be serious i like to look at the lighthearted side of, of a lot of things so yeah i'm happy that comes across it does turn off some people though but uh some people they love it yeah no i'm I'm a fan so please keep please keep it up yeah i'm happy to hear that <laughs> <laughs> so mike uh let's let's talk about uh toilet paper entrepreneur or even before the toilet paper entrepreneur like yeah. your story leading up to the toilet paper entrepreneur how did this all come about yeah so the toilet paper entrepreneur um came out of a big transition in my life. I I started and grew a couple companies uh, and sold them both. And um, it sounds glorious uh, and it was fun and it, and it was very financially rewarding. But what happened after that was my ego exploded and I was like, oh my God, I can know how to make money doing anything. I'm the best entrepreneur in the world. It just got really full of myself um, and subsequently lost all my money uh, as an angel investor I call myself the angel of death. I'm, I was just horrible. <laughs> I was horrible at investing. I really shouldn't have been there. Um, and it, it caused a restart in my life. Um, it wasn't a pretty restart. I, I went through uh, a period of, of depression and, and other things. But um, it subsequently spawned lots of ideas. The Profit First book and that concept and stuff came out of that period of my life. But I, I decided I should become an author. Like This is something I felt purpose in. I, I felt it, it fulfilled a vision of mine. And while it wasn't representative of a tech startup that grows explosively and you make you know millions or billions, uh, it, it just spoke to what my heart was calling out to do. And when I wrote The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, I originally was writing it as a journal for myself, just questioning everything I've done in business. And if it was truly a, a truth in business or if it was just my perception of what a truth is. And then it started to turn into a book. And uh, Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, the core concept was that I believed we needed resources to grow, that if you really want to have explosive growth, you got to do a row show in front of VCs and get money. You, you need angel investors. You need contacts and networking. You got to go into a field that you're familiar with so you can you know, crush it. And I challenged all of those beliefs. 
And I found now that that isn't necessarily the fastest way to growth. In fact, I find more examples of the reverse. When entrepreneurs start companies and they don't have money and they don't have the resources in the network, it's when we don't have all this available to us, it forces us to approach our industry in a radically different way. We're forced to be innovative. So toilet paper entrepreneur, and actually if you look at the cover of the book, it's uh, it's that three sheet moment, <laughs> you know, and everyone's been there, and we don't talk about it, but everyone's been there, and, and everyone navigates it. You you find a way to survive that situation. Well, in in business, we don't talk about the three sheet moment so much. We hear the stories in in front of uh, Forbes magazine and Inc. and Fast Company. You see Mark Zuckerberg up there, Elon Musk, these guys and gals that have just crushed it. Sarah Blakely, you know, right time, right place innovative idea. And we start to believe that's the path. But 99% of the successful entrepreneurs that you'll never hear about got by with a few resources. So the, the book pays homage to that kind of mentality, that kind of approach, and then gives the resources and tools for being successful and or wildly successful when you don't have the resources available. Absolutely. What, what, what you're saying is that um, not having enough is actually an advantage. It's not a disadvantage. So don't underestimate the lack of resources. It's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, constraints make it better for us. They actually allow us to be more creative and more innovative. Yeah, you're right. I, I hear so many stories uh, around toilet paper entrepreneur when I spoke with people saying I didn't have the way, the means or the money to do it the way the industry did it. So I had to come up with an alternative. And then I hear the industry learns about this alternative and they the industry shifts and adopts over time to this new alternative. They say necessity is the mother of invention because it is. It absolutely is. Yeah. And I I will I will relate this to my story with regards to my past as an engineer. Um but what what was going on was that uh, I got laid off once mm. back in 2004, and I had an H-1B visa back then. Mm-hmm. So that Ooh. meant that if I don't find a job within yeah, like you're in trouble, <laughs> yeah, three you're, weeks or four weeks, I got to leave the country. Get out of country, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. And uh, what I found, even though the market was not that good, it was okay. To me, it didn't really matter. I I I was in the corner here. I had three weeks to find this job and I would do whatever it takes to find a job. And lo and behold, I got a mo- I got a whole lot of job offers. And compared to that, I saw some of my friends, American friends, who were probably smarter than me, better than me, and they were still struggling to find a job. And I'm like, what happened here? I can't believe it. At that time, I didn't understand. But then this pattern repeated itself when I got laid off again and I had to find another job again. But again, the same story happened where because I had such little time, I had to do whatever it took. Otherwise, I was not going to survive. And I would keep on finding these like four or five job offers in a month's time. And my friends were like, what happened? How do you do that? Like, I don't know. I just have to. I have no other option. Right. Yeah. And these, uh, and my friends who have unemployment benefits and they could like get their severance and all this stuff, they just kept on delaying the process or they kept on letting it happen. So I, I really believe in what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, it's, it's funny. When we have resources, what the default response is, is to follow the established path. Um, 
you don't blaze a trail. I mean, if you have a vehicle, if you have a car, uh, you're going to follow the highway. But if you don't have a car, your only means of transportation is your feet. You find the shortcuts. You go over terrain that a car could never and would never navigate. So money is the same way. Once we have the money, it's a vehicle to move our business forward. But then we follow the obvious path, follow the highway that everyone else is on. It's it's the guys and gals that don't have money that start blazing this new trail because, they, first of all, they're not even permitted on the highway. But, but secondly, it's dangerous, and they don't have the vehicle that can travel that way. There's a great story I just I'll share real quickly. Is there's this guy he does oil distribution and he heard about the toilet paper entrepreneur. He says, you know, uh, he's very established and successful in the industry. But we were talking about it. he said, you know, when I started, uh, oil distribution happened two ways. You would deliver oil to say like a Jiffy Lube in these big uh, tanker trucks because Jiffy Lube gets hundreds and hundreds of gallons at a time. Conversely, if you're delivering it to the local hardware store or auto store, you're delivering it in those little quart. Um, containers, and that comes on a shelving truck. So to be successful in the oil distribution industry, motor oil, you would, you would have two trucks, a tanker truck and a shelving truck. He said he had no money, um, and he couldn't afford any of these trucks, but he was able to uh, basically barter a box truck, which, by the way, uh, is for carrying big cargo. It, it doesn't support either of it. So he went in there. He put a wood panel split down the middle. He found a used tanker uh, uh, a static tank that he installed into the truck on his own with, with friends or whatever. And the other side, he put in shelving. He invented a new type of truck that was half oil distribution and mass tank. The other half was a shelving unit, and he did it on the dime. Well, he says now he only needed one driver instead of two drivers. It was one truck after all. And that one driver would first go to, you know, say, um, Jiffy Lube, drop off oil, and then go over to the local auto store. So it was much more efficient and much it, cost, it saved so much money. He said, fast forward five years, his business grew explosively. He was running way more efficiently. He had tons of these. Then the industry took notice, and the industry started to change. The, the funny or ironic moral of the story is this guy changed the industry because he didn't have money. Now that he has money, he says, I don't know if there's anything else I can innovate with. He's like, I think we're done. I think the industry's done innovating. And my response to him was, watch out for the next guy that doesn't have money. He's going to kick your ass. <laughs> that, is, that, that, that is so true. That is so true. Like, I think in martial arts, they have a saying that says, um, whoever has the least to lose is the most dangerous fighter. Yes. 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 Um, so, Mike, let's jump into the book a little more and give us give us an overview of how the book is laid out and what we're going to get into. So, the first thing is uh, I talk about the mindset, and I, and I devoted a lot to the mindset of the entrepreneur. The biggest ally or the biggest enemy we have is actually our own mind. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that says. You know, my business is struggling, but I can't raise prices. I'm going to lose all the clients. I said, well, who have you told this to? Who's turned away? They say, no one. I just know it. So our mind comes up with these beliefs, and then our business uh, is guided by that. Well, there's limiting beliefs that prohibit our growth, and then there's channeling beliefs, ones that kind of springboard us forward. And what I found is the essence of a successful mindset in, in entrepreneurship are great questions. If we ask a question, a bad question, like, how am I going to ever stay in business another day? Um, your mind is going to start working on this thing saying, well, I don't know how you're going to stay in business another day, and we'll just figure out scraping by. If your mindset says, if your question is, you know, how do I double the fees I'm charging for my services and do it in half the time? Well, now our mind starts kind of working on that question. So big answers, 
come from big questions. And so the beginning of the book is is about our mindset. The second element I found is, is a lot of people say um, passion brings about success. You have to be passionate about what you do. Well, I, I call bullshit on that. Um, passion is not – I'm not discounting the importance of passion. I think it's extremely important. But passion does not bring about success. Passion begets drive. It begets effort. So if you're passionate about something – You'll do it naturally because you have a love for it. So it's passion that, is necessary but not sufficient condition. Correct. Oh, yeah. That sounds like an Eli Goldrack comment. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but that's what you just ref- referenced. So um, yeah, that's exactly it. Passion brings about persistence. It's persistence that brings about success. I just know – I met too many entrepreneurs that say, well, I'm, I love what I'm doing. Why am I not successful? And they miss that middle piece. That passion brings about that persistence. And that persistence, maybe months, maybe years, maybe decades, that brings about what we defined as success. So what what you're saying is that we should we should follow our passion. We should follow our heart. But that by itself is not going to be enough. There is a lot more that has to be. That's exactly done. it. Okay. I, and, and I argue, actually, you have to follow your heart. Um, I have a uh, a saying on the wall here, I have, I call my heavenly board. Um, there's, these are people I respect tremendously, but have because of their history, not that I ever have known them and they've passed away, but I consider my board of advisors when I'm considering, uh, something for my business. I look at this wall I have up here. I got five like paintings with their, their sayings on it. And I refer to it and see if what I'm considering is congruent with it. Well, one of them is Harold Thurman Whitman. And he said, Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That resonated with me. That talks to passion. That talks to purpose. Many of us go out and just pander to a customer base because, hey, people need this. And yes, you can make money that way, sure. But it eats at your soul. You're not doing what you love to do. If you do what you love to do and package it away where customers want it, now you've hit that perfect panacea. You're doing what makes you come alive, brings happiness to you. That's what life's about. And you're delivering something that people will pay for. That brings about sustainability. So back to that original formula. Passion is necessary. Purpose is necessary. It brings happiness. Don't anticipate it'll bring success. It will bring about that persistence and stick to itness. We then need the flexibility to stay, stick, stay in the game long enough, adjust accordingly to align what makes us happy with what customers want. And that's where sustainability, which is my definition of success, comes from. And then the next thing you talk about is uh, having focus, right? Having that uh, narrow focus to um, move yourself forward, or I guess not just move yourself forward. Though. And that's probably the only way to be really successful. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So I argue that the riches are in the niches. That if you want to, once you identify what makes you happy, once you have a mindset that's not limiting your success, but actually pushing you forward, the key then is to identify a market, a group of people that are being underserved or not served well and catering to them. Um, I'm actually, it's funny. I have a call uh, in about an hour and a half from now with Brian Smith. Brian Smith is the founder of UGG. Um, the, and we're going to be uh, talking. And what I want to learn from him is about his success. And just doing research, preparing for the call we're going to have together, 
the outward outside perception of Ugg is, hey, um, look at what they did in the teenage market. If you know, if you're a teenage girl, you buy Uggs, and this became a fashion statement. It dominated. That's how this guy became successful. But it's not true. If you rewind the story, Brian Smith, he's an Australian. Um, he grew up in Australia. He's an Australian surfer. He loves the surfing community. He developed the Ugg shoe back in the 70s for Australian surfers. And what he did was he over-catered, not over-catered, that's the bad choice of words. He catered to this market better than they ever have been catered to before. He designed a boot that was made out of shearling. Shearling is a, uh, is a natural material, comes from sheep, that doesn't collect bacteria. Now, the idea is if you come in off the Australian surf and you stay on the beach, you know, surfing is now a year-round activity. There's some really cold days. You want to put your foot in a warm boot, but if you keep on putting your foot in a warm, wet boot, it's going to start smelling horribly. Well, shearling, shearling doesn't collect bacteria, so it doesn't collect any odor. So you can throw these things on. He also made the boot calf high. The reason is when you walk down the beach, the sand can't kick up and get in there and start grating your feet. So all the design elements were a way to super cater to very small niche of people, Australian surfers. Well, then the magic happened. So Australian surfers fell in love with what Brian Smith was doing with UGG. UGG then expands to the surfing market outside of his locale. It, it crosses the ocean. It's now popular in California beaches with the surfers there and the surfing community. The surfing community then is the one who made it go explosively popular. It wasn't Brian's sweat and effort. The uh, surfers are a cool statement. A lot of people like to emulate what the surfers are doing. And so teenage girls were watching the guys and gals surfing out in the ocean there. And they say, oh, that's cool. And they started to emulate the look. And then it hit the mass, mass market and Ugg became a, you know, the billion-dollar brand. The lesson to us is don't try to target the billion-dollar brand from day one. Don't try to cater to that mass group. Pick that small niche that's being underserved. I mentioned Facebook earlier. Mark Zuckerberg, he targeted the Harvard community just for a way for for folks to, to connect with each other just on one campus. He catered some better than anyone else have. They carried it to the larger community. We as entrepreneurs need to do the same. Absolutely. This is this is such an important lesson in especially early stage entrepreneurship. As one of my mentors, he likes to say, you got to nail it before you scale it. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I'm going to write that one down. What, what's your mentor's name? That's awesome. Uh, Rob Coons. He's, Rob Coons. Uh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Like that's, that's where the early stage entrepreneurship is, has to happen in the nailing part. And then scaling is, it's a different game. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. As you're growing your business, um, you're going to see a lot of flash in the pan. So a lot of people try to scale it immediately and they haven't mastered the craft. You have to have the fortitude. And I write about this a little bit in the book to, that there's going to be these companies that come in and you're like, oh my God, there's so many competitors popping in. But watch what happens over the next six months or a year or two. A lot of them come in and fade out. And the reason they come in and fade out so quickly is that they're trying to go too broad, too fast. They haven't dominated the market and they haven't learned what they don't know. That's the key of the niche. So I, I recently started a company that caters to accountants and bookkeepers. And we are, while we're only six months old, we are entrenched in the learning stages. And what we envisioned the company to be literally six months ago is almost 180 degrees different already and we still haven't mastered it. So we're going to stick and stay in this area for a long time, as long as necessary, 
before we try to scale to a larger set of professionals. You've got to dominate that niche. You got, as as Brian, uh, Rob Kuhn says, you got to nail it before you scale it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is spot on. Um, and now let's um, let's talk about the, the third component, which is action. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So this was kind of a call out to um, the community of, I guess, wannapreneurs, folks that fantasize about the idea but never do it or have a concept for their business but never play it out. Um, what I believe is there's only a certain degree of learning you can get from outside observation, reading books, attending seminars, uh, through mentors and coaches. It's, it's really the doing where the learning happens. And so we have to put action, even if it feels prematurely, in the forefront of what we're doing, but have lots of opportunities to, to fail quickly but softly. Um, I wrote my book before Lean Startup came out, um, and I was reading Lean Startup, and uh, Eric Ries uh, argues about the minimum viable product. I love that term. It's a fantastic way of, of pitching um, quick failure, inexpensive failure. You know, this is kind of the back to the nail before you scale it thing. I've seen too many entrepreneurs say, okay, here's the grand idea. They invest so much time and money into it, and then no one's buying it. How do you introduce just enough of an idea where you can get the customer to take the action of buying it or at least committing to buying it from you and deliver to them and then learn? Um, that's the action part. Pay deference, play deference into taking action now. Uh, realizing that you are going in ill-prepared, but you'll never go in fully prepared. The safety mechanism you have to have in place is do the absolute minimum to deliver on what you believe the client need to be and then observe and learn. Take the critical feedback. I'll just give you one example. Just for our accountants and bookkeepers, this business I started, we just rolled out our second version of our website. Six months later, our first website was literally a single splash page, if you will. And we brought on um, enough clients now, about 75 clients came in just through that splash page. And they gave us feedback saying, this is what we need, this is what we want. Now we rolled out the second version of our website. But it's, it's still a kind of a minimum kind of website. It's still played down. And we're now observing people's response. We thought the second design was perfect and it spoke to our community. Well, we're watching their behavior you know, through split testing, all these different things, uh, and getting their feedback, and we're like, oh my god, we missed it again! Like it's not, it's not perfect. But instead of investing, you know, tens of thousands in our website, we just put a few thousand bucks in it, which at our stage is now very reasonable and affordable, and we're monitoring what happens. The minimum viable product idea, taking action early. The idea behind that is in all elements of our business. As you build your marketing websites, test out at a minimum level and monitor. When you roll out your service, test at a minimal level and then monitor. When you roll out your products, your, your phones, anything you have, your infrastructure, try it at a minimal level, prove it out, and then scale it out. Yeah. So what you're saying is there is no perfect plan. I mean, the perfect plan doesn't really exist because uh, I think Mike Tyson, he likes this. He said, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth by the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> it's so... True. So I mentioned that uh, in Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, not Michael Tyson's, but uh, Colin Powell said the same thing. Every military leader has a plan until the first bullet flies. The, the, the argument is that there's so many variables 
And every action has a reaction. You take a hit from Mike Tyson and your neck snaps off, you know, everything changes. That first bullet flies and something unexpected and always unexpected stuff happens. You have to adjust accordingly. So it's constant adjustment, adjustment, adjustment. And that's the idea of taking early small action as opposed to one massive action only to find out you're wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So one of the things, um, actually, you said in the book, which was success in business is not about being right. It is about being committed. So that's that's kind of like closing the loop here. That's what we're saying is, well, you don't have to be right the first time around or the second time around. But as long as you're going to keep at it, you're going to find a way. You're going to find a way. And, um, you know, uh, there was a study of, of husbands and wives. Uh, it was a fascinating study. The This group, I don't know who it was. I just heard it you know, through the grapevine. But this group studies uh, relationships. And they ask women, they say, when you have an argument with your husband, how often are you actually right? And the women said, you know, about 80% of the time, I'm right. Then they interviewed the men. And they said, you know, when you have an argument with your wife, how often are you actually right? And they said about 80% of the time. (laughs) So, you know, we have this belief that we're right, and then we start acting consistently with it, even though clearly those numbers don't work. The best would be 50-50. So we believe we're right. we know as men that we're right like 10% of the time now. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I found, yeah. It's true. (laughs) But in business, we believe the same thing. We believe that we're right, and therefore we stick to something, and we ignore the signs of the customer. We need to do something and actually go in the belief that's likely wrong, but our job is to observe it and learn from it. It's hard on the ego, but that's the fact. Absolutely. So there we have it. I, I think uh, there's also the part on money and equity if you want to touch upon it. Or, yep. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Just Oh, yeah. Oh. So basically, um, I, I talk about money and equity in, in, from the perspective of what you trade off when you raise money. So at certain stages, you build your business. It sounds so alluring to go out and raise angel capital. I've done that. I've done a VC roadshow for one of my companies. I've done that stuff. What we don't realize is that we give up ownership and control. So it, which doesn't sound bad. It's like, oh, I'm getting all this money. Well, you're not getting it. The business is getting it, and you're inviting in a new person to own and run the business. The, the thing we're also not aware of is when we take an outside equity money is that these people are not giving out handouts. They're investors. Just like you and I may invest in a stock market, I don't care what General Motors is doing. If I buy their stock, all I care about is that I get my money back plus some. So they better work their ass off. And if they're not doing it, I am going to send in complaints and stuff. I just want my money back plus some. Well, angel investors are investors. Uh, you know, VCs are investors. When they put money in, there's a very clear objective of making more money coming out of it. And I've seen owners get kicked out of their own business with not a penny for themselves. I've seen businesses fall apart because the owner doesn't understand that component. Ultimately, when it gets to bringing in other people's money too, it's much easier to spend. You don't feel that pain. You get Someone gives you a million bucks or whatever the money is. It's so easy to spend other people's money. So I argue in the book is as you grow your business as much as possible, use your own money. That's the painful money. I hate to spend my own money. I want to retain that. The best funding is usually the founder themselves. And then I go back to the beginning of the book and I argue why you'll never have enough money to do what you want to do, but it will force you to become innovative and you'll achieve what you need to do. 
So lack of money, again, is your biggest ally in many cases. So we're going full circle right. where we started with the idea of toilet paper entrepreneur. Excellent. Um, so Mike, to, to close this discussion out, um, what we like to do is we make sure that listeners don't just listen, they also take action. And your book is filled with so many, so many actions. I've actually done a lot of those exercises and really enjoyed it. So, um, would you suggest three key action items or homeworks or whatever it might be that yeah. our listeners should go into? So yeah, so homework assignment one is what is your life's purpose? Ask yourself what your life's purpose is because that is where passion resides. And I will tell you this. Uh, I didn't know or have to find my life's purpose until my late 30s, early 40s. And the only way I got there was for the prior 10 years to start asking myself, what's my life's purpose? So when you do this, then within seconds, I'm sure you'll be writing something down saying, oh, this is what my life's purpose is about. Done. Exercise done. The challenge this next day is to ask yourself, is this my life's purpose? And what I found for myself, it took years to refine and change and tweak. And maybe mine, I suspect it's not even done yet, but I have such clarity on it that now it's guiding me and pulling me forward. And I just ask myself that question every day. So if you don't know your life's purpose, and I suspect most of the folks listening in right now have never even thought about it, your life's purpose is to discover your life's purpose. Start asking that. That's where your business, the essence of your business, the heart of your business resides in your life's purpose because our business is really an amplification or a platform to express who we are. So that's step one. Step two is write a prosperity plan. And, and this is different than a business plan. because so I found that most business plans, when you write them, it could be you know a nice thick document. It goes on a shelf, collects dust. And you look at three years later and you're like, wow, none of this stuff came true. I, I didn't get investor, you know, investors involved. I didn't play it out the way it, I expected it to play out. So instead, write a prosperity plan. And the prosperity plan uh, is basically your big vision for your business. And it's a living document. I, mine is literally a two-page document. And what I write on that is first I write my equivalent of a BHAG. This is a Jim Collins term. Which, okay. I... I challenge the BHAG. I think it's missing one component, but a BHAG says a big, hairy, audacious goal. I say we need to have a big bang, and a big bang is your big, bold, audacious, noble, and that's the key word, noble goal. The noble part is what is your life's purpose, right? So so what's your big bang for your business? Who are the customers you're, you intend to serve? What's the business going to feel like and smell like when you get to your definition of it? This becomes just simply your guiding map. Just like when you're traveling a ship, you got to know some bearing points of where you're headed. This is what you look at, and it's a living document. You revisit it on a quarterly basis. Maybe you revisit it every day, and you look at it and say, is this still true for my business? And it helps guide you along. And then my third thing, my third and final homework assignment is what's that one thing you haven't done yet? Do it. It's usually the scariest thing. Maybe it is starting the business. Maybe it's forming the LLC or the S-Corp or whatever it is. Maybe it's calling your best customers and finding out why they're buying from you. Whatever that one scary thing is you haven't done, we talked about earlier, action brings about results. Don't keep waiting. Don't keep guessing. Take action. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, just just to add to that component where you said, don't keep waiting, take action. I heard the founder of Instagram, uh, Kevin Systrom, he said, there is no perfect next action. Mm. So all we need to do is have a bias towards action and we'll have to figure it out. There is no perfect next action. So thought that was right like there with that. what you're saying. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mike, for uh, 
this wonderful interview. I, I'm sure listeners got to learn a lot about where your thinking is when it comes to toilet paper entrepreneur. And also, uh, hopefully, they'll dig into the homework and get something meaningful out of it. So, thank you. Yeah, no, it's been a joy. And on my site, uh, if you want me to mention it, on MikeMichalowitz.com, that's my website, in the resources section, there is uh, a guide for toilet paper entrepreneur, lots of things you can do. So that's available on the site. It's free. You know, you just click on it. Excellent. Of course, all the links from the show today will be on the show notes page. There you can also download the summary and action guide of the book. So just head on over to 2000books.com and you will find everything right there.